0: Awesome, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of It Is What It Is podcast. I'm your host, Cody Kelly. Thank you for tuning in. Look, I had to come with a special episode today because I've really been waiting for something newsworthy to happen. Usually, I go live on Mondays, but today we switched it up just for this week. But as always, if you want to keep seeing amazing content, please subscribe once it pops up, hopefully it pops up, to the link below, uh, YouTube at CV space K. Let me know that you're out there also engaged you know this is a live show and with a live show you can interact with us we'll interact with you I have an amazing an amazing guest Nick Peterson I'm allowed Nick to introduce himself we're gonna cover what's at stake for Georgia and the US Nick how are you doing today
1: doing pretty good uh, it's good to be with you all on this evening I uh, hope that you all are doing well uh, thanks Cody for inviting me to be a part of the the show on tonight uh, I'm Nick Peterson I'm a PhD candidate Uh, in the religion department at Emory University down here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, My family has been here. We've been here for about going on. Well, this is our fifth year down here. Uh, We moved here from from Pennsylvania and uh, we are uh, we traded one battleground state for another battleground state. So ironically enough, during the entire election cycle, you know, we were bombarded with all the calls, all of the texts, you know, making sure that we were voting in Pennsylvania uh, and as we respond, we're like, well, we're actually here in Georgia. So Georgia's been a very interesting state. I'm sure we'll have some cool things to talk about, um, you know, taking place down here in Georgia and, and, and what the landscape is looking like. But uh, again, thanks, Cody, for having me, and I'm I'm excited for this conversation. So,
0: oh, I appreciate you. Appreciate it. Look, let's get into it. So we've now had two debates, and I think there's another debate scheduled. Uh, let's start with Reverend Warnock versus Senator. Kelly Leffler, right? We'll go with the obvious. In my opinion, um, I I think Warnock held back, right? I think it was an issue of optics. I felt like he didn't want the stereotypical image of a black male and aggression to take place. He also tried to really distance himself from the truth that he is. He's he's a pastor. uh, He's a preacher. And a lot of it was thrown against him where he should have used it to me as, as a really strategic point to pivot. Uh, so I want to start with right there, in your opinion, who won that debate? Uh,
1: who, I, I, I think I would probably flip it. I don't know that, that winning the debate does much. Uh, to me, it's the question of, of who, uh, who has more to lose in however that debate sort of plays out. And I think it is definitely the case that Warnock has more to lose than, uh, than Leffler. Uh, in the sense that she is, uh even though she's only been in the term, only been in the Senate since January, um, as an appointment uh after Johnny Isaacson retired. Um uh, but I think as a uh as an opponent to the incumbent, um uh, there's definitely you know more for Kelly to lose in terms of Senator Leffler to lose uh in terms of of, of losing her current seat. Uh, but I think there is more for uh Warnock to lose uh, in terms of actually shifting the the balance of the Senate. Uh, so in that respect, I, I definitely agree with you. I think it was a lackluster point, uh, uh, performance for, uh, for Warnock. And I think some of the opportunities that he could have had, probably if he had had some better strategic coaching, uh, would have really helped him um, sort of reach, I think, his target audience. There's no question that he's got the Black vote, right? So Atlanta is Warnock. That's uh, that's kind of a, a given. Um, but he needs to speak to to the suburbs, right? The Atlanta suburbs. He's not going to pick up much in the rural areas. Um, the best he can hope for there is that people actually don't come out to vote. Uh, but I think in terms of like some of these surrounding um, suburbs, Cobb County, northern Gwinnett County, um, Forsyth uh, and some of these areas that surround the uh, that make up the Atlanta metropolitan area. Uh, I think he really did need to speak to those voters. Uh, And one of the ways that I think he could have done that was I could I think he really, really could have played up the King piece um, because King is now everybody's hero. Right. You know, King's got McDonald's commercials. He's got uh, Nike commercials. His voice is on Ford commercials during the Super Bowl. Um, So there's this sense that, you know, everybody feels like they can resonate with King. And he's preaching every Sunday. Right. uh, In the same church that that uh, King preached in, that King's father pastored. Uh, so I think in that respect, there's a way that if 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 there had been a little bit more strategic sort of preparation of uh, finding ways to leverage that narrative, that desire for justice, that desire for, um, you know, for uh, unity and uh, unity in diversity and strength in diversity, uh, that there's those are some things that he could have really highlighted and did the, uh, the Kamala Harris technique of like, you know, pointing right to the camera even the televangelist, I mean, I think she picked it up from, uh, from Benny Hinn, you know, I'm going to look right into the camera and tell you, you know, what you need to do and what you need to, you know, what you need to hear. So I think that, that in that respect, it was, uh, it was not Warnock's best performance. Um, all that being said, I mean, Leffler, was terrible. I felt like I was just listening to trigger words. It was really like, just, okay, let me look down at my note. Okay radical left. right. Let me look, okay, what I said that five times. Okay, I need to say that seven more times according to my, okay, what else do I need to say? Socialism, green, right. nude. okay, let me, I said that seven times, let me, okay, that's good. What else do I need to say? Jeremiah Wright, you know, so she had these kind of touchstones, again, that speak to that same demographic, right? right. These people who are concerned, uh, who are still concerned, especially in the wake of the proliferation of the Black Lives Matter movement over this last summer, where everybody was home and watching the unfoldings across the major metropolitan areas uh, right. in the city, um, she's speaking to all of the kind of cold words that stoke fear, that stoke, um, you know, that, that really drive a particular kind of conservatism. Right. Uh, and she just, you know, flat-faced said that it was over and over and over and oh. over and over. So how, that's how my po- initial... Kind of
0: how tea. how come the uh, Republicans are so good at branding at brand messaging? Um, as you mentioned the the keywords, uh, she mentioned at least a hundred times the American dream, and then on the flip side, the nightmare was radical liberalism, right? Yeah. Like another nuance to liberalism. This is radical. Yeah. This is something dangerous. It seems like they're great at branding, right? Like uh, they're the, the thinkers behind, I feel like, all McDonald's phrases at this point. Like they just come up with new stuff. But it seems like the Democrats don't take that. They try to explain their positioning and their strategy without actually putting a label on it for whatever reason. And then when they do come with the label, it usually backfires, right? <laughs> why? why? Why is dog whistling the only tactic it seems like uh, the, the Republicans are using in these, in these uh, elections?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think particularly under, you know, Republicanism slash Trumpism, I think what we have and what we've witnessed is that we've witnessed the extent to which bombardment um, and overwhelming the public with constant, like just a constant assault of misinformation, flat out lies, half-truths, but like always staying in the airways, like always, the camera never turns away from the president, and it's not because the president is governing, um, but it's because the president, <clears throat> the president is completely cavalier in uh, in what he says. And so, what that does is that actually sets the frame of the conversation. And so, because the Republicans under this particular, especially under this administration, have the opportunity to set the frame of the conversation, anything that the Democrats are saying is always just a response to that. So it's always a kind of, in some regards, like a, a tit for tat. Um, it's almost like you, you're arguing with your parents. If your parents accept the parameter about what the rules of engagement are, then all you can do is sort of like operate within that. And so I think that that's why it's very, very difficult for Democrats to get a uh, to, to get a head start is because they can't frame the discourse. The discourse is already framed and it's being framed every single tweet that the president sends out. Um, and there's just, I I think with that, it just gets to be really, really, really difficult, um, to get on the offensive, uh, when you're always kind of having to defend the attacks that are levied against the party that's actually not in in control.
0: It's true. Do you think, I mean, before the runoff, when we were doing the election for everybody, now we had this special runoff, um, uh, Reverend Warnock was up over 300,000 votes, right? Do you see, um, a major shifting in that? Like is, is, because of the fact that, you know, uh, Biden won Georgia first time since uh, Jimmy Carter. Do you think that that will have a negative connotation and there could possibly be a, a, a swing of 300,000 plus votes in the wrong direction? Or or do you think that pretty much it will stay the same and Warnock will take that seat?
1: I think it, it has the potential to stay the same. And one of the reasons why I say that is because the, the part of what made this election uh, work, to some extent, in the Democrats' favor, really has to do with some of the the groundwork that that Stacey Abrams laid here in making sure that voting was accessible for people, encouraging absentee ballots, encouraging early voting, all of those things, and and allow like having that lead ground of just constantly, you know, um, churches were conscripted in the project, you know, making sure that their membership was in, engaged. Even my own church here was doing, uh, we were doing. Uh, weekly sort of like check-ins and uh, online information sessions, letting people know uh, when, you know, where they needed to vote. There was campaigns to help people get to the polls to actually if they needed rides. So I think all of those things really, really worked well uh, for the Democrats in this election. And the fact that the president really mismanaged the entire pandemic, right, Um, this entire sort of COVID situation. Now, coming into this runoff, the fact that those things are still available. Uh, on Monday, we start early voting uh, here. Uh, we still have our absentee ballot boxes up. You get absentee ballot. The requests you could request an absentee ballot. Uh, you can still do that here in Georgia. So I think all of the the fact that, that people can vote um, with a certain amount of ease is uh, is helpful. I suspect that if Republicans are trying to utilize those things now in terms of upping early voting and upping, uh, Mellon voting, uh, that that could, you know, folks who sort of may have set out the general election or uh, are not knowing now that Georgia is going to determine which way the, the Senate goes, um, you know, and who will have the majority or whether or not um, Vice President-elect uh, Harris will, will be the deciding vote. Uh, I think that that can motivate folks on, on both sides. Um, what's been an interesting distraction, however, over the last few weeks uh, really has been the president's behavior, and the extent to which that may turn off some of these kind of critical suburban voters who are like, "Wow, is he just being a sore loser?" And uh, and you know, if even if they can't vote or don't feel like they want to vote for Warnock or um, or uh, or Ossoff, um, yeah. then you know they may stay home. And so, to some extent, I think the best thing that that could happen for someone like Warnock is for many of those uh suburban folks to 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 stay home
0: it um, makes sense and speak speaking of osov um his debate was interesting. he might be the first senator or not senator but running for Senate seat first political candidate to debate against nobody um i you know had the pleasure of watching his i wouldn't call it a debate but it's more like a twenty seven uh minute interview because <laughs> <Right, laughs> right. uh, his opponent decided to ghost the bit and not tell anyone right um First of all, is there, I mean, obviously there's not a crime. I guess, you know, it's unprecedented, uh, but this is 2020, everything is unprecedented. You know, not showing up for a debate that you agreed to, it I mean, what, where do you go from there? Like what message does that send to your base? Like I, I don't care or it doesn't matter, or or is this, and the second part, is this some type of evil strategy to form some type of pseudo-government that basically is gonna operate antagonistic to the, the incumbent uh, administration?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question there's going to be antagonism to the incumbent administration, right? That there is, um, you know, regardless of, of who, um, of how things shake out for the Senate, I think there's going to be no question um, that the, the incumbent lame duck president will continue to host campaigns and will do everything in his power to make the GOP the Trump party. And uh, his party. And I think where that has tied Leffler and Purdue's hands is that they've kind of had to decide, are they on Team Trump or are they some other kind of Republican? And for fear of losing Trump's base, um, they've kind of had to dance that line. You know, uh, the question that was asked directly to Leffler was like, you know, did did the president win or did he lose the election? Um, you know, and there's this kind of like evasiveness around that. And I think the same thing for Purdue, Purdue, again, who is an incumbent, um, feels like he doesn't probably need to dignify, um, you know, the, uh, the actual debate with his presence. The other piece, you know, that, that always could be at work too, which we don't know. And I think they could be tight-lipped about that as well. We don't know if the man got sick or if he thought he may have gotten sick or, you know, a test didn't come back in time. Like, yeah, you know, all of those things are possible, um, but to my knowledge, he hasn't, you know, offered any kind of apology uh, or any kind of uh, follow up statement about not showing up for a debate that he agreed to. Um, but in terms of what that impact will be, um, you know, who knows? I mean, really, it is one of those things where It's like, you know, it says something about the extent to which I would say the way we narrate democracy uh, and the way we narrate a participatory democracy um, can can be challenged by that, you know. So here it is that your your task as a senator to represent the entire state, and the opportunity that you have to actually speak to the state uh, is one that you choose not to to take. You know, uh, says a lot. It does say a lot.
0: I, I got a. It was an interesting statement Asov made, and and I agree with him. I thought it was a little. It was like an easy grab, but if you kind of understand the facts behind it. It might've been a a, a slippage point. If he was actually debating somebody, he could have got caught on it. He said, uh, in response to Purdue blocking the $1,200 stimulus, uh, this time around. And he was like, yes, I support direct relief, uh, to the people, uh, for these stimulus checks. Uh, the interesting thing is, Earlier on in the fall, around August September, there was a bill actually proposed that had the twelve hundred dollars stimulus. It was missing some other things. It was meant. It was missing renters' protection. It was missing some vital pieces, but it did have the direct payment again that was actually denied by the Democrats. Now with this bill, this nine hundred and I think eight billion dollar proposed package, it doesn't have uh, the direct cash uh, payouts. Do you think right now twelve hundred dollars stimulus check is that is that uh, too little too late is that just low hanging fruit like should we move on to something that 's really actually going to provide assistance, or is it just par for the core
1: I think it's par for the core I think that there is a, particularly with the holidays coming up um you know they 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 know that the markets um, basically the markets move into the black following black friday um, retail in particular and when you think about the impact or the the extent to which um the uh, the U.S. economy is dependent on retail for employment uh, and the entire sort of, you know, vertical chain that's at work in retail. Uh, even though we don't manufacture the stuff that we sell, uh, the fact that we need folks to drive it from the freight ships that come from China and Asia to bring it here, uh, and we need truckers to be on the road to get it from, you know, the, the port cities to uh, to the interior cities, all of that kind of stuff. Um, retail is, is important. Um, you know, Walmart, and Amazon have not suffered during the pandemic, and we can be very, very clear about that. So the idea of trying to put some money in people's pockets before the year's out, uh, I think, it's just very much, uh, again, it, it sort of harkens to the logic that Bush gave us after you know nine eleven. Go out and shop. Go out if you want to help the economy. Go out and shop, uh, and, and I think that that's that that's kind of the, the the pieces that they want to be able to do that. Christmas gifting, uh, kind of thing to, to mark the holidays. Uh, but I think just in terms of, and really what's taking place with the pandemic is the pandemic is really, really showing us, uh, how wide the gap can be between the haves and the have nots. Uh, and it's showing us the extent to which, um, those who are the most vulnerable, uh, in our, in our society have to take the most risks, uh, in order to, to make ends meet. And still, you know, can't make ends meet. Um, so I think to really contend with that is to like to really address that would require a kind of program that's addressing issues in childcare and education. It's addressing issues in health care, um, uh, health care um, discrepancies. It's addressing issues in housing and uh, not only just affordable housing, but safe housing. Um, you know, obviously, most of the country is in winter now and, you know. Who's talking about the homeless? Like we're talking about the pandemic, um, but nobody's talking about the fact that there are still millions of Americans who sleep under bridges outside, you know, who are relying on shelters that don't have the capacity to house people because they need to provide some level of safety uh, in in social distancing practices. But there's been nothing, you know, that's been mentioned uh, about the most, uh, the absolutely most vulnerable uh, so much as it has been, you know, you know, we got college students who are protesting you know college student debt which you know I'm I'm one of them people you know in mm-hmm. that group in terms of who ha- who has education debt yeah. um, but even the acquisition of that debt reflects a kind of privilege that mm-hmm. many folks a lot of people who've even served our country right in the military who we hold if they had died they would be saints but who as um, kind of wounded warriors you know come back and are not able to to access the services that would actually, You know, help them. So, I think I think in terms of what they're trying to do is it's good press. Um, It's good press, and it would it would sort of support the notion of sending people home uh, with a few pennies for the holidays. So, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's uh,
0: talking about that wealth divide, that gap. That gap has increased, right? If you um, were in a position that you could afford uh, to heavily invest, the pandemic was literally like. Uh, shopping spree. I mean, uh, when it first started, um, stocks decided to decrease in value. um, And then at the same time, M&A activity still continued (laughs) at the same time. uh, Because of all this, there was just opportunity uh, to uh, extend or or expand one's wealth. Um, Is that fair? Should Should our politicians have this absorbent amount of access? I mean, traditionally, so if I think about the framing of the constitution, which is hard to compare then to now, but our politicians, you know, whether it was George Washington, don't like to use him because he was a ridiculous slave owner, but he was a wealthy person. You think of John Adams, he was a semi-successful lawyer, right? They've always had wealth. Is 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 the the finite problem is that you have too much money influencing politics. Even when I think of, you know, we couldn't pass this bill because we we're missing billions of dollars, but then you think how much. Is spent on advertisement, how many millions are poured into the campaign every election season? Where is this money coming from, and is it ultimately dangerous?
1: Yeah, um, so the my redux on <laughs> on American history, uh, and uh, and finance, and and those pieces is that we we maintain a slave economy, we do. and uh, a slave economy requires um, that. The production of capital go forth unencumbered, right? Um, and that unencumbered manifests itself as low taxation. It manifests itself as deregulation, uh, and it manifests itself as uh, as corporatism. Um, and and the constitution is designed itself to favor corporatism, right? Um, what what and even in representation, right? So. The fact that the Constitution has, uh, in, in Article, uh, in Article Two, Section Three or Section Five, um, you know, don't quote me on that, um, but the Three Fifths Compromise, right? The Three Fifths Compromise was to ensure that slave owning Southern land owning and slave owning men would have um, obscene representation in the halls of Congress, right? So they wanted their slaves not to count as their own persons, but to actually boost. Their own presence within within the halls. That's a form of corporatism, uh, in the same way that right now corporations get to be thousands of people because of their money in terms of their lobbying. Now, neither one of us have a lobby. You know, can just go into uh, the 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 go into Congress and just decide that we want to sort of court people uh, to get the legislation that we want on uh, on the books. The other side of that is. America's understanding of democracy and its performance of democracy is built on some form of economic success. And the only way that happens is that the government has to prioritize the economy over its citizenry, because it's conditioned us to understand that a healthy economy means a healthy citizenry. Um, and so... The function of the government is to actually ensure that corporations are able to survive and able to do business in ways that would then allow them to hire people and to um, you know create competitive markets that produce jobs and yada 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 you know all of these things that you know that we learn or maybe we don't learn uh, in civics and economics, but to that extent, the primary function of the law, the primary function of regulation, the primary function of any of those things, is not. To uphold the individual rights of the American people, uh, but it is to ensure that our GDP is increasing every year. Um, and when you and you see this most present when there's a push to have the government take control of some of those things that would directly impact people's lives, like healthcare. And mm-hmm. so now we get this, you know, we don't even have to talk about what. Is actually necessary for us to have good health care. We just talk about buzzwords, socialism, socialized health care, socialized, da, da, da. well, tax benefits are socialized too, right? That's a form of socialism. That's a form of socialism when we give the wealthiest people in the country, these tax breaks that allow them to, uh, to, to, to withhold resources for the good of the country, uh, while others suffer, right? So that's just a pain it forward. The notion of the, record, uh, Reagan's uh, trickle-down economics is never a trickle-down. It's always a funnel up, right? So it's always the poorest, the least, who have to pay the most for the kinds of services that they need. And that's a Rockefeller principle, even Rockefeller said, I will never lend money to somebody who needs it. Wow. Right? It, right. You know, so so in that extent, there's a there's our, our society is really banked off of creating avenues of exploitation, and at the same time, providing a narration and a continued stream of, if you just work hard enough, if you just follow the law, if you just do what you're supposed to do, you know, you too can become rich, you too can become wealthy, you too can become, you know, uh, uh, uh an image, uh, of the American dream. And that's increasingly becoming less and less possible as these gaps widen, um, is there, a,
0: is there a way that it can be resolved, like a mixed market system? Uh, you know, I get it. America is, is hung up over buzzwords. So any type of extreme amount or extreme measure might be seen as socialism, right? And then it's automatically scoffed at and disregarded, right? But, you know, we're at the point of falling off the cliff, <laughs> right? The American economy, if you want to keep things going forward something drastic does have to happen right what does that measure look like because i'm reminded and obviously you know i invest god's been good i'm not wealthy yet i'm not wealthy right but um i do believe in capitalism to the point of having the ability to create one's destiny but i'm totally aware of the origin and it's uh demagoguery and its insidiousness and everything evil with it that has to be done away, right? So I like the pure stance on it, but not the reality of it. And that's why I believe that it has to be a fully functioning system. Karl Marx said in Communist Manifesto, hate to quote that book, but Karl Marx said, you know, basically people grow tired of capitalism and then one day revolt. Is there is there something on the horizon that you see? Like you think of the Andrew Yangs coming uh, into the forefront? That we're going to have more of a mixed market system.
1: Um, again, the the I, I really like to. <laughs> I know capitalism is a uh, is a word that sounds good, but I, I really like to um, talk of the American project as a as a form of um, both colonialism um, and settler colonialism which would require the forced removal and the genocide of those who were um, previous inhabitants of the land uh, and a full-on exploitation of, of, of human labor through a means by which you don't determine it as human. Uh, and so America cannot be America without slavery. And I just don't mean the historic slavery, I mean everything that slavery produces. There is no America without King Cotton. There is no America without the modern um, health industry that soils people in debt. There is no America without the insane amounts of debt that young people, a whole generation is carrying, um, coming out of college with college loans. There is no America without the prison industrial complex and the fact that that's an entire economy, uh, an increasingly economy that's designed to support and benefit both in census and in employment, um, small rural primarily white communities um, in southern states but increasingly in northern states um, uh, there is no america without an educational system that's baked off of the racism that's embedded in the uh, housing industry as it as it stands you know the the truth is you can have the exact same build of house on the exact same um, in the exact same city. But if white folks live there, it's worth more than if black folks or Latino folks or other folks live there. And why does that matter? Why does it matter? Well, because that will then determine the millage rate. And the millage rate will determine what kind of resources are made available based off of the value of the homes in the community, the resources that are made available for the local school district. Um, so you, there isn't a way to sort of parse out um, the redeemable aspects of capitalism apart from the necessary, the absolutely necessary forms of exploitation. If we were to just take three seconds, everybody who's watching it, us included and look at our collars, I guarantee ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the stuff that we're making was not made on American soil and was probably made by a four year old in Taiwan or the yeah. Philippines. Yeah. Um, who stitched together the clothes that we're making? Now you can go around your house, and it's probably going to be true that most of the things that we're using are made by people whose labor is exploited um, for the sake of, of capitalist production. Uh, and so, in, in that respect, I, I I think that you know it is it is without question in Marx, Gramsci, you know you can, you'll find this is that these rely on capitalism as a sort of a solution. Right to capitalism. The the piece, you know, for, for, for Marx in particular, is this notion of alien, the idea of alienation, that people are alienated from the capital that they produce. And part of the Marx correct, Marx's corrective would be to to dissolve that alienation, so that the capital that you're producing becomes a benefit to you and not the capitalists. Um, so to sort of distribute those kind of resources more equitably. Um, but the flip side of that is the only way we can produce capital is you got to exploit something. Either you're going to exploit the land, you're going to exploit the people, or you're going to find a combination to do both. And America, as a globalist empire, um, has found a way to to, to do all of that. Uh, so we we exploit the land. The president just last week signed some you know uh, agreements that would allow him to sell off large portions of formerly protected um, natural preserves in Alaska. Yeah. Um, that can be used now for fracking and other kinds of exploration to see what other materials. Uh, are there but all of this is to say in capitalism capitalism can only survive if there're more commodities and the commodities are limited in terms of what they can be based off even when you trade the futures and and all that type of stuff you still have to have some form of commodity and that commodity is going to be in any in some way shape or form connected to land right. or people those are your two options because Water huh
0: water's now a new commodity you know called <laughs> yeah. the New York saga stage it's like Lord So Let me ask this. Last question. I appreciate your time. Um, Are people tired of politics? And what I mean by that, I think after all this, I think both parties have to go through a rebrand, right? I don't think the Democratic fold or the tent, as they call it, President Obama's been calling it a tent, it seems that that tent is warring, right? You have the progressive side, and then you have more moderate to conservative Democrats. And then, like you said, Republicans no longer exist. You have truplicans right you have trumpism and the the uh mitt romney's of the world are you know few far in between uh the senator mccain's got arrested so you know these these that kind of made the republican party really what it is is no longer uh at least a, a viable presence right do both parties have to go through a rebrand
1: uh no because both parties are well funded by the corporations <laughs> that need uh uh, America to survive, and so the you know I think it was in this last election the final number came out at around like ten billion dollars spent for the presidential election, ten billion dollars um and it's like well that ain't everybody that ain't that ain't five million people giving five dollars right, right. <laughs> uh that doesn't add up right that don't add up to you know what we what we had when when Obama talked about you know we had this grassroots campaign with people giving their own. You know, so many millions of people chipping in five dollars here, ten dollars there. When you're talking about ten billion dollars, you're talking about big, 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 big money. And so to that extent, you know, I think what we have now is that we are tired of the performance. Right. We're tired of the inundation. Um, But I think to that, you know, there's this sense of like once we get Trump out the way, we can go back to some form of normal. And I think the assumption in that is that you'll get Trump out the way. Trump entered into the arena as a celebrity, um, as a, uh, uh, what do they call those, um, reality TV celebrity. Trump will exit the presidency as a reality TV celebrity. Uh, And, you know, rest assured, like if there's space for Hannity's, if there's space for Bortz, Neil Bortz's and Rush Limbaugh's, um, there will definitely be space for for folk like Trump. And I think what we'll see um, is that we'll just see more. Right. We'll hear more of this. And what we've been conditioned uh, toward over the last four years is just we've just we've been conditioned to um, to to, you know, to just handle it and to deal with it. And so for as much as Trump makes people, you know, um, it's fatiguing. Trump is still such a presence that you don't you can't turn away from it. Right. And that's what makes for good television. Um, Good television is not just about, oh, it's wholesome and it makes people feel good. No, you don't care if people feel good. You want people to watch so they can be angry. Right. (laughs) As long as they watch it. Right. Mm -hmm. If they watch it, they, you know, like, you know, I I had a a good friend who uh, would really, they were not a conservative, but they would only watch Fox News. And their idea behind watching was like, I watch Fox News so I can, you know, figure out how to respond and argue back. Uh, but the whole time they're watching, they're just, but Fox News don't care whether or not you agree or whether or not you like what they're saying. As long as you don't turn that channel, you know, they're, they're fine with that. And I think that if anything, uh, moving forward, the Republicans can learn is that you can win elections with populism. But they what they will need is that they will need somebody who's not only populist, but somebody who has the principles to govern. Uh, and, uh, and that's not what Trump's strong suit is. Trump could have won this election if he had actually governed just a little bit during a pandemic. The right. man got 74 million votes after people saw how he ran the country and how he lied and how he, you know, tweeted for four years. And 74 million people after having seen him for four years still decided that that is the man who they want to run the country. That man would have won if we weren't in a pandemic. Uh, and that should be alarming to the Democrats. But still, all we're going to say is our main, uh, the, you know, the Democrats' main slogan is "At least we're not Trump." At least we're not Trump. We're not Trump. We're not, Trump. We're not bigots. We're not racist like that. Right, right. Um, but I, I, today, I don't think I don't think we'll see a turning point um, because Trump still commands so much uh, of our attention that it really won't be, you know, something different. I think until uh, until he's. Complete is until he's he's found another horse to ride. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, I don't think there's going to be any rest. Uh, I think that he's still going to be campaigning during uh, Biden's entire uh, presidency. And since he lost this election and technically could be president again, uh, I think he's going to be the person who decides who's going to be on the GOP ticket. Um, you know, and he's just and then the way the Republicans have refused to abandon him. Right. Um, only strengthens his power after this election so we'll hear for the next four years that he was cheated uh and if it's putting up his daughter in 2024 or putting up one of his sons in 2024 we ain't seen definitive this is not the end of trump that's for sure
0: not the end of trump Wait, way to end it look i appreciate you so much nick where can they connect with you man where can they follow you <laughs>
1: Uh, so I am on uh, Instagram, IG, and the way that you can find me there is at n a r y k c i n, n a r y k c i n. Um, so yeah, same awesome. thing on Twitter.
0: Same thing on Twitter. Guys, connect with Nick. He's amazing. He's a thought leader. He's a leader in Georgia and a rising. And I'm sure once his theological doctrine is complete. I'm sure he'll be pastoring a mega church soon in <laughs> uh, <laughs> somewhere here in the United States. I so much Look, we have some amazing stuff. I've been working on a few things as far as episodes and content. Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. It's going to be a wild January. I'm going to do a couple episodes in December, but 2021 will be all heat. I appreciate my guest, Nick. Thank you so much. We will connect again until next time, guys.
1: Yes, take care.